Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. I'd like to talk to you about Christian joy. See how I try to smile when I say that? I remember, when I was preparing this, I remembered that I had preached previously from Philippians 4, uh, beginning with verse 4, about uh, Paul's admonition to us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. And he goes on to say, be careful for nothing, but in everything gives thanks with supplication and prayer. And I checked the date of that sermon and found that it was one year ago almost to the day. So I find myself a year later again thinking about our Christian joy. Now some of you that are cynical might say, Well, Brother Mike, both of these sermons are coming on the Sunday before your birthday. And perhaps you are just trying to cheer yourself up from being another year older. I don't think that's the case, but I do enjoy preaching and thinking about the subject of our joy in Christ. In fact, One of my roles as a minister of the gospel is to be helpers of your joy. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.24 that we don't have dominion over your faith. We're not lords over God's heritage. But Paul says we are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. So part of my joy is being able to increase your joy by reminding you of what God has done for us in Christ. Sometimes we Christians get, um, I think, a bum rap. And people view us, it may have been H.L. Mencken that said that Christians are those that, uh, are Puritans, I think he said were those that were always on the lookout to see if somebody was enjoying themselves so they could tell them not to. And that is a very much a distortion of the way the Puritans looked at joy and rejoicing in their lives. They sought it diligently. Uh, Thomas Watson said, for instance, if God is so great a reward, let us, let such as have an interest in Him be cheerful. 
God loves a sanguine complexion. That's a good old 16th, 17th century expression that means cheerful disposition. Cheerfulness credits religion. The goodness of the conscience is seen in the gladness of the countenance. Let the birds of paradise sing for joy. Shall a carnal man rejoice whose hopes lean on earthly crutches, and shall not he rejoice whose treasure is laid up in heaven? Be serious, yet cheerful. As a dejected, melancholy temper unfits one for duty, especially that of praising God, so it disparages heaven. Will others think God is such a great reward when they see Christians hang the wing and go drooping in religion? It is a sin as well not to rejoice as not to repent. Christopher Love, another Puritan, said that we're in danger of rejoicing in the wrong things. And he warns us to not rejoice in our sins. He says wicked men do this a lot. He quotes Jeremiah eleven fifteen: When thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. That's what wicked men do. Christopher Love says that the sins of other men is not something for us to rejoice in. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, is what Christian love does. And he goes on to describe what our joy uh, should be in. Our joy needs shaping and directing. And as a helper of your joy and our joy, Paul did that, didn't he? He directed us to the things that make for rejoicing. And Paul used the prophets for that purpose. Paul would refer to the prophets and explain how that God had changed the course of history. Now think about this. God has arranged the course of history so that we might rejoice and that he might rejoice. In this passage that we heard read this morning, there is reference to a new heavens and a new earth. And one of the things that God directs us and encourages us, he does command us, but it's not a command that's onerous. It's an invitation for us to rejoice in his new creation. Paul says, or Isaiah says rather, that God was going to create a new heavens and earth. And he, he tells us that God says to us, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. So we can see that if our joy is going to be directed toward the proper things, the things that really give us joy, one of the things that we should contemplate and find great delight in 
is the new creation of God. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to get into a discussion of prophecy and talk about the new heavens and new earth. So I'm going to give you two or three statements uh, regarding this new heavens and new earth that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 65, and some of you are already smiling at me. But I want to give you enough to encourage you to believe that this new heavens and new earth is something that we should rejoice in now. And that when God was speaking to Isaiah and through Isaiah to Israel and telling them to rejoice in this, he was speaking about a situation that we are now in. You say, well, I've always thought of the new heavens and new earth as being at some future time after some great cataclysmic event that is going to happen, and then there will be a new heavens and new earth. Well, whatever truth there is in that, let me just say this. Biblically speaking, a creation, there was a physical creation, and we sang about that from Psalm 8 this morning, and we're looking forward to hearing that physical creation, that creative act of God described and contrasted and compared to evolution this Tuesday night. And that great creative act of God separates him from all other gods. And God calls attention to that repeatedly in the scriptures. I am the God who spoke and things came into existence. I am the God that acts in history. These false idols that men create for themselves can neither speak nor hear, and neither can they create. But I am the God that creates. And so God uses His creative power to distinguish Himself from all other gods. And this creative power and act of God becomes a metaphor for his creative power being exerted in history. And he uses the, um, the, the imagery of creation to describe conditions and situations that he brings men into. You remember Joseph's dream. One of the things that really bothered Joseph's brothers, brothers, and his father and mother as well, is when he told them about a dream where he saw the sun and the moon and twelve stars bowing down to him. Now, outside of the just jealousy at him distinguishing himself, what do we see the, the dream signifying? 
we see the dream signifying that there would be a time when all of his family, the patriarch of the family and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, and his brothers, 11 stars, I guess I should say, the, 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 his brothers bowing down to him. Joseph was a type of Christ. So it's a, it's a time of, of, of his family rendering service to him. Now, that was a situation described by cosmology. Uh, when God goes to describe the destruction of nations, like in Isaiah 13, he describes the destruction of Babylon. He does it by describing the stars falling to the earth and the earth melting and the sun going dark and, and imagery like that. And he describes the destruction of Isaiah and Egypt and Idumea and, and numerous other nations he describes that way. Well, the creation of Israel itself is described in Scripture as a creation. And so here in Isaiah chapter 65, we read about God's threatening that nation of Israel with destruction. He says, you have burned incense to false gods. You have broken my commandments. You have gone astray. And I am going to destroy you. I'm going to give your name to another. I'm going to change your name. And has he not? He has changed the name of Israel to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so the, Jesus talked about this same exchange, and uh, the apostles talked about it as well. So another fact that I would ask you to consider in this passage in Isaiah 65 there is a reference to death existing in it. In verse 20, we read that there, therefore, there shall be no more thence an infant of days nor an old man that hath not filled his days, for the child shall be a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So there will be a longevity of life, not experienced before that, but there's still death there in the new heavens and new earth. Physical death. A third thing I would say, not only is this imagery of a new heavens and new earth used to describe the age in which we live, it contains physical death, but not spiritual death, according to verse 20, but the New Testament really emphasizes this new creation, this new heavens and earth and says that we're living in it. For instance, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. But then he goes on in chapter 6 and verse 15 to say this, 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Now, what's that, what's that debate there between circumcision and uncircumcision? It's the debate against Israel after the flesh, circumcision, and Israel after the spirit, meaning the circumcision of the heart. So that's the contrast Paul has here. But he says that that in this uh, existence, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. And he says in Galatians 6.15 that in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 is where he says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, why are we saying all this? It's because of this. God directs us to rejoice in this new heavens and new earth. And so he wants us to consider what he has done, and he wants us to rejoice in that creation. So why is it that God wants us to rejoice in this new creation? Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, in verse 16, says, I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. Now the physical creation was long past. And yet here we are, God is saying to Isaiah, I'm going to put my word in your mouth, and the word that I'm putting there is that I am going to plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth. Not the physical creation again but the new creation in Christ. And so we see a lot of the same imagery as we saw, as we see in Isaiah 65, in Isaiah chapter 51 as well. Notice verse 3. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort her all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her deserts in the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. We see the collapse of the universe again in verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. And the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hebrews quotes passages like this. It says that God's going to wrap up the heavens and earth like a garment, and in their place will be this new creation, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And the destruction of earthly Jerusalem is found in this passage as well, in verse 17. <coughs> awake, <coughs> awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of fury, for thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. So why is it 
If you're, okay, maybe you're listening to all this and you say, okay, Brother Mike, you're telling me that I should rejoice and that my rejoicing should be centered around the new heavens and the new earth that God said he would create. Well, give me something specific that I can rejoice in, in this new heavens and new earth. Well, I've labored to this point to try to convince you that you are in this new heavens and new earth. If you don't believe that you're here in this situation in which Christ is reigning, we're in Him, we're reigning with Him, and our citizenship, Paul says, is in heavenly places, and we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. We have risen with Him from the dead. We're no longer dead. We're no longer bound to sin. We're justified. Dearly beloved, we are just as justified at this moment, as we will ever be in the sight of God. And what does that mean? Justification is a legal term. It's what happens when you have a trial in court. When a person is accused of a crime and they're brought before the judge and jury, ideally, theoretically, one of two things will happen. Either the judge will ultimately pronounce a sentence of condemnation based upon the fact that the accused is guilty as charged. And she'll suffer the punishment due for due to his crime. Or the judge will issue a verdict of justification. Meaning that the evidence has been presented, the circumstances have been considered, the law has been examined, and there is no guilt found on the accused. Nothing that the guilty party, uh, the, the accused party has done has been found to be legitimate. Paul says there is there now there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, I want us to, to just dwell on that. I know it's a familiar thought to many of us, but I'd like to call your attention to it again this morning as a helper of your joy. In the new heavens and new earth that God has created in Christ, 
that you are a citizen of and that you are a new creation in Christ. And that's all that matters, dearly beloved. Paul says that circumcision, uncircumcision is of no consequence. Whether we're new creations or not is what matters. And if you and I are new creations in Christ, and if we're living in the new heavens and new earth, here's God's word to you. Everything that you have ever done, every thought that you have ever thought, every desire that you have ever had, has been examined. God's holy and righteous law has been opened, and your record on God's book has been compared to this holy standard. And God has issued a verdict as judge. And that verdict is not guilty. That means that there is not a single solitary sin on your record at all in this creation, in this new heavens and new earth. Now I want to tell you what the robber of our joy does. You know what is opposed to our joy? The devil hates it. Your flesh is not willing to accept it. And the world is opposed to it. All three of those enemies are against you and me rejoicing with a godly rejoicing in the new heavens and new earth. And they will, all three of those enemies will continuously accuse you both to God and to your own conscience. And we are prone to listen. We are prone to accept and to imbibe into our being the fact that we are sinners. Now, in one, way, one manner of speaking, that's a natural thing for us to do. We don't want to be proud. We don't want to go around saying, I am not a sinner, and I don't have any sins before God. Sorry about all you people that do. And so we want to guard against that, and rightfully so. But listen, the grace of God that brings this salvation and brings this joy also brings other fruits of the Spirit such as meekness and humbleness of mind and a readiness to forgive others as we have been forgiven. But in the new creation in Christ that God has established 
It is true that God has taken all of our sins and all of our iniquities and He's placed them on Christ and He's punished them in Christ. Jesus bore our iniquities on the cross and His blood has purged us from all of our sins. And we are just as righteous today as we're sitting here and standing here as we will ever, ever be. We sang about Christ rising from the dead this morning. Up from the grave He arose. You know why He rose? The apostle said it was for our justification. He arose again the third day in order that we could be justified. Can your spirit accept this? That if you are a believer in Christ and you're trusting in Him, your slate is more than just clean in God's sight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that Christ was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Just think about that a moment. I am as righteous in the sight of the Holy Judge, the Creator of all things, the righteous, omnipotent, unchanging, everlasting God, the thrice holy God. I am totally pure. Just think about that. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about... Don't think about even me. Don't, don't, please don't think about me. But think about the fact that you have no sin in the sight of God. He'll never bring them up to you again. The Scriptures are replete with, with images to remind us of just how far God has separated us from our sins. We've all of us sinned enough to send us to hell millions of times over. There's not a single commandment that we've not broken. Repeatedly. Even since we've been saved. And yet God is saying to us, in this new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, I have taken your sins and I've separated you from them as far as the east is from the west. Long way. I have cast them into the depths of the sea. Now, y'all have to forgive me. There are some here that have not heard this illustration before. So I'm going to use it and uh, the home folks have heard it probably more than once. 
there was once uh, an uh, older man that had been really rough and committed a lot of sins. He'd been drunkard and carouser, and he got converted to Christ. And he loved the Lord. He just praised the Lord. And when he thought about these things that we're talking about this morning, he just would shout. He couldn't help it. He would just praise the Lord, just lift his hands and and worship God for these things. And uh, but he, he, he the church he joined was a, a rather sophisticated, large church, metropolitan, and. Um, so he, his his outbursts of praise were just not quite in harmony with the tenor of the church services, and so he he just kept the preacher to be preaching, be preaching about forgiveness of sins, and he'd just start yelling, "Praise God! Praise God! Hallelujah!" And he'd raise his hands and disturb the service. And finally, people got tired of it, and they they said to the deacon, "said Look." He's disrupting service. So the next time he starts to do this, would one of the deacons go down and just kindly ask him to go out to the vestibule until the urge to praise God passes? And so sure enough, the next Sunday the preacher was preaching. He started to praise God, and and the, the deacon came down and whispered in his ear and asked him to go out in the vestibule. And he went out to the vestibule, and was out there for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, they heard the loudest shouting and the loudest praises they had ever heard. And he was so loud out there that he was disturbing service. And so the deacon ran out there to see. He said, Joe, what's happening? And he said, well, deacon, he said, I tried to do what you said, and I tried to get my mind on something else. And I picked up a National Geographic out here. And I learned and I saw an article that said in some places the Pacific Ocean is six miles deep. And when I got to thinking that God has cast my sins to the depths of the ocean, he said, I just couldn't stand it anymore. He said, I had to praise God. Praise the Lord. So there is no remembrance of sins in this new heavens and new earth. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews just a minute. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage, but I want you to see the... New heavens and new earth and the rejoicing that is here as a result of what God has done for us in the forgiveness of sins in this passage. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because if the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore when he cometh into the world he saith sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. 
but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that is the first covenant, that ordained all of these remembrances for sin. He, Jesus, takes away that first covenant that he may establish the second covenant. Verse 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering sometimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the removal of Israel after the flesh and the covenant that governed her worship of God. And he's talking about bringing in its place the new covenant where the way into the true holy of holies was opened through Christ. He's talking about the replacement of a covenant where sins were remembered over and over and over again continually year by year, never ultimately being resolved with a situation, a condition, a dwelling place, a new heavens and new earth where there has been one offering that took away sin forever and has completely perfected those that are sanctified by that one offering. Sounds like shouting material to me. What does all this give us? It gives us righteousness. Our consciences have no more remembrance of sin. Let me tell you something. If your conscience is smiting you 
because of your failures, what God would have us do, and this is not, this is the Word of God. First of all, you need to believe by faith that Christ has paid for all your sins. If you can believe that, and not everyone can, but if you can believe that, it's because God has written His law in your heart. He has opened your heart like He did Lydia so that you can attend to the things that are preached to you. If you can believe the gospel, then your sins have been placed on Christ. And God has written His law in your heart. Now, if you have sinned and your conscience is smiting you because of it, that happens to all of us. You're, you're not alone. It happens to all of us. But hear the word of the Lord. Those that are smitten in their conscience are to come to Christ and confess, agree with God that that was a sin and ask for forgiveness. And the Scriptures tell us plainly that those that do that, God is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Now let me tell you something. You're already cleansed if you're in Christ. But our consciences get defiled. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 13 when he was instituting the Lord's Supper and he washed their feet? Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. Paul, uh, the Lord said to Peter, he said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter, being the impetuous, boisterous personality that he was, he said, well, in that case, wash my hands and my arms and my legs. Wash me all over. And Jesus said, you're already washed. But when your feet... And walking through this old world, get dirty with sin. You need to have your feet washed. You need to have your feet washed. And so you're already purged in God's record if you're a believer in Christ, as completely as you'll ever be. But your conscience is defiled by your acts of sinfulness. And God says to us, I want you to come and confess that sin and receive forgiveness in your conscience. He will purge you from dead works and purge your conscience from dead works. And you will be able to serve God in your spirit, which includes rejoicing before Him. having your body sprinkled with pure water. 
And so there's righteousness in this new heavens and new earth. There's no remembrance of sins in the new heavens and new earth. And listen, listen to this statement. I'm going to hurry. Um, just, just, just mention a few more things in passing. There's no death in this new heavens and new earth. Now, this doesn't contradict what I said earlier because in Isaiah chapter 65, uh, physical death is mentioned. That's not the important death, is it? And Jesus could say things in John 8.51 like this, Very, very, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. He said things like, those that follow him, they would not a hair of their head perish. We've got to see beyond our physical circumstance to accept and understand that. I expect to die physically. But I know that what Jesus said is true. I'll never taste of death. I don't know about you, but that's that's a matter for joy. It seems like death is destroying everything that's precious to us. Like the song we sing, change and decay and all around I see. The second law of thermodynamics is definitely at work. Things are coming unglued, it appears. But Jesus said that I would not taste of death if I'm in this new creation. There's hope here. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. A favorite weapon of the devil in our society today just feeds on it is to rob us of hope. It robs us of hope. Now you just have to forgive me because I'm reading a book by Dr. Richard Swenson called Margin. What our modern society does, it says we need more technology, we need more stuff. And if we had more technology and stuff, more money, we could be happy. And what happens is, the more, I can vouch for this this very weekend, the more technology we get, the harder it is to maintain it. And the more time we spend trying to fix it when it breaks and worrying about when we should get a replacement and do an upgrade, and the more stuff we accumulate, the more clutter is in our lives, and we just lose all margin between us and God, and and we we don't think about things, and we don't allow the prospect that God has placed before us to create hope in us. 
because all of our time is eaten up. We don't think about passages like this. And we don't just think about the great hope we have in Christ and what our future is. And I'm not talking about just in heaven after we die. In this new heaven and earth, there are clusters of spiritual fruit growing everywhere. Every Christian has some in their lives. Some more than others. But in the lives of Christians that are living the way Paul says in Romans 5 and Romans 8 and many other places, we find love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Doesn't it increase your joy when you see these things in other people? It does me. There are some of you that have refreshed, well, all of you, uh, let me just, I'll not sing there all Everyone in this room, I, I can say that, except for the, our first time visitor. <laughs> everyone in this room has refreshed my spirit and brought joy to my heart as a result of seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In the new creation, there are people, there are trees, of the plantings of God walking around bearing the most precious fruit you can imagine. This kind of fruit. They're bearing leaves. The image in Revelation 21 is that they bear leaves for the healing of the nation, the nations. The fruit that you bear, the leaves that you bear, are designed by God to ultimately heal the nations. You find peace. Christ is our peace. We find long-suffering. We find lowliness and meekness. All right. My time is up. Here's the thing. Here is what God wants us to do. In Isaiah 12, verses 4 through 6, in that day, let me rephrase it, in this day in which we live, Say ye, praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord. For He had done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Isaiah 42, 10-12. Not read it. It says, Sing, shout, give glory, and declare the works of God. 
sing, O heavens, and be joyful. O earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He will have mercy upon his afflicted. Isaiah 51, 11, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing into Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. So let me leave you with this thought. God tells us through Isaiah to rejoice in his new heavens and new earth. He says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. God repeatedly in the Old Testament told Israel to look back at what he had done for them in bringing them out of Egyptian captivity under Moses. Today, God says repeatedly to us, Look what I have done for you in creating the new creation in Christ. Glory in it. Rejoice in it. Shout in it. Sing in it. There is no law against this. There is no reason for us to be downcast and to have a sad countenance. I know there are seasons we go through where things are sad, and I understand that. But ultimately, our hearts sing and rejoice even in times of difficulty and struggle. And um, we don't want to have the false image of, that the Puritans had, but we want to have what they truly sought after. And Christians down through the ages, all the ages, have sought joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that our, the chief end of man is to know the Lord and enjoy Him forever. That's our chief joy, to serve and obey the Lord and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we hear you saying to us, Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. We hear you saying to us, Rejoice evermore. And sing praises to me. Father, we confess that we have not done that as much as we're entitled to do it and or we want to set our spirits free Lord in our own minds uh, according to your word you have already done that according to your word you've provided everything necessary you've placed us in an environment a new heavens and new earth where we can rejoice and in this new heavens and new earth dwells righteousness and peace and joy and all these things. Now, Lord, we ask for you to defeat our enemies, even our own thinking. Bless us, Lord, to 
change and beginning this very day. Father, we pray that you would bless us to, to do like David and encourage ourselves in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.